Father, we do praise you this morning for the things that we've mentioned and the things that you're doing in people's lives and all the way down to physical healing. We praise you for those things. We know that you are sovereign over all and you work in the material realm as well as spiritual realm and we praise you for those things. And Lord, as we look into your word, we will see how multifaceted it is and how variable in terms of the way that you communicate. And yet, through it all, you have a singular and a definite message for all of humanity and mankind. And the passage we look at is even, though it is somewhat difficult and deep, yet at the same time, it is pretty simple as well. We praise you for that, that you've communicated in a way that we can understand and yet be challenged in all of our thinking and all of our thoughts. So we desire that you give us illumination to be able to not only to see the simplicity, but to be able to see the depth of what you communicated this morning. So we commit our time in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Romans this morning, we're going to look at... Romans chapter 5, one of the more difficult passages in the book. And every time I look at it, I have to review kind of my thinking. And I'm not sure why. I don't know why it doesn't just cement in my mind. Some passages are clearer than others. This one seems to always force me to think about it. But hopefully we put it together and we're kind of in the middle of the passage This morning we're going to get into some more of grace. We've seen a little bit of it, but we've also spent a lot of time talking about judgment and condemnation, and this morning we're going to have the contrast of that. And in this passage we're still in the portion that deals with justification. The last few verses on that subdivision of the book of Romans And then we'll move into sanctification. In fact, this is a transitional passage. And just quickly, and this is just for Mary Lee because she missed this one. Transition from justification to sanctification. I see essentially all of chapter 5 as somewhat of a transition. And what Paul is doing in the first 11 verses, I think, is giving us... The results or the product, you might say, or how we profit from justification. That's how I've titled it on your outline sheet, the profit from justification. Primarily for motivation, that we be encouraged that this is not a small thing, justification, that God has accomplished. So we've kind of defined that as... Basically the same idea as salvation, although it looks at it from a legal perspective, in that we are violators of God's law, essentially, by being sinners. We are unrighteous. We don't have a right standing before God in all ways, including legally. But justification has those two aspects. The first aspect of what? Forgiveness of sin, or the removal of the negative, but it also has the bestowing or at least the declaring of the positive of righteousness. In fact, the word relates to that, and if we get that far, we'll have a review of some of that. So that deals with our initial entrance into grace 
in this passage emphasizes that once we have been justified, having been justified, then we have peace with God because we have a new standing. We have an introduction to his grace, whole plethora of grace that's available to the believer and all the other things that come with salvation, including a future hope. That's verses 1 and 2. And even in the midst of tribulation, we can expect it, anticipate it, but even it, God is using it to sanctify us. So it's transition into the next major section, chapter 6 through 8. And the passage we're looking at, we have a contrast between that old life Paul describes it as a reign or a rulership, and it's dependent on how we respond, whether we respond in faith to what the Bible teaches us. Then we have another alternative rather than the reign of sin and death. That's the major barrier, whether it's initial trust in Christ or ongoing in sanctification. In fact, the principles are very similar. So we've looked at that Initial portion beginning in verse 12, and we're going to get, well, we won't quite get into the reign of grace. We're still kind of in the middle of that, but it's a transition to sanctification where he gives the basis for right living. And we're going to see a little of that if we get to verse 17 this morning. So it's somewhat of a transition. And in verses 12 to 21, I've titled it the powerful reign. I think that's a theme of the whole thing. What rules your life? the old life before Christ, or the new life. And he's going to give us detail on that when we get to chapter 6, but we have transitional statements already in chapter 5. So 12 through 17, that's the passage we're in. We are affected by what Adam accomplished, and he, Paul, describes it as a reign of death. And we've stressed through the one Number one occurs how many times? I can't remember. 14, 15, I don't remember how many times in this passage. So he's contrasting the one work of Adam that plunged all of humanity into sin and death. And he's moving into a transition to the one work, looking at what Christ accomplished on the cross, that gives the potential to reverse all of that and even more. In fact, we're going to see the little word, much more. In other words, more than what was damaged, the restoration even goes beyond that. Okay, so we have the reign of death. We have the devastating reign of death, verse 12, that kind of introduces us. And then we have the entrance of sin and death in that passage. We looked at that, and just a quick review. It starts, therefore... Just as something is true, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We spent a whole week on that passage and part of the next week. And then we have this dash. You would expect that if he says, just as this is true, so also this is true, or the counterpart is true. But he doesn't get to that until he gets to verse 18 because of the kind of the interruption there. And it's not unusual for Paul to say, oh, I've got to include all these other things. Some of them are by reminder, but also in terms to elaborate. 
And what he's doing, he's elaborating beginning in verse 13 all the way through verse 17, because it's not until verse 18 that we have the so then. So we have the just as something. So it's not till we get to verse 18 that we have the so then. And now he's going to expand and give the contrast. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, and now he picks up. So I've been using the chart here to kind of lay out this whole paragraph. And some of you have taken photographs of it. So it starts with the therefore. It's a different therefore than what you normally have. Just as something is true, this reign of death through one man's sin, it's a rulership, you might say. He's viewing it almost like a dictator. You might view it that way. That's verse 12. And then it doesn't pick it up until verse 18. So then, and then now he goes even so, there's this alternative. So for the Christian, he doesn't have to live that old life anymore. It's a decision, it's a choice. We can allow another ruler, you might say, to take control. And that's Romans 6 through 8. We'll talk about that. So we have the reign of grace from one man. One man's righteousness. We're going to have the results of what that was accomplished. And then we've been looking at the passages in between 13 and 14. 4 is an expansion of verse 12. For these kind of add to what he said in verse 12. And then we are in 15 to 17 today. For this is true, and he's going to make a transition, but there's something else that's true. And then when we get to verse 18, he's going to support the so then, even so, in verse 19, with for this is true. So it's kind of complicated, a lot of parts to it. That's why it's not easy to follow. And then we have 20 and 21. He's going to add to that, and it's going to be more of a contrast. So hopefully that helps you put it together. So we have the rain of sin and death. Then we have an explanation. Then we have a contrast with that explanation. We have the results of this reign of grace. He expands it in verse 19. And he ends with his final contrast there. Okay? So we've been looking at the terms for sin. They differ in the passage. The first one is the broad, overarching idea, hamartia, missing the mark. And that has been persistent through the book of Romans, the idea that all of us miss the mark. And what that mark is, or the target, is we all fall short of the glory of God. Those are Paul's words. Falling short, don't measure up. And our best efforts are like filthy rags. We've been stressing that. So that's behind this idea. So we'll never reach the mark apart from what Christ has accomplished. And also in verse 14, I gave you the wrong word last time. Nobody caught it. Ah. Mm. The word I gave you occurs in verse 15, but the one that occurs in verse 14 is parabasis. Para alongside of or falling alongside or away from something. It's a violation. It can be a violation of a principle. It can be a violation of a law. Or it can be an offense. That's how it's translated in verse 14, New American Standard. Offense. And it's kind of a subgroup of the broader term 
hamartia, missing the mark. Also reviewing, we saw from verse 12 through through uh, 14, sin entered through Adam, one man, original sin. We've been talking about that. There's consequences of that, and the consequences are death. We define that. You go back to Genesis to see what death means biblically. And death, he's going to use, I think, this idea of death in its comprehensive sense. Every aspect of who we are died in Adam and we're dead in Adam. In fact, Ephesians 2, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We're dead in every aspect of our being until Christ gives us new life. We remain dead until we receive him for the very first time. It's not going to church. It's not doing good works. In fact, our good works are filthy rags. So there's consequences. So that comprehensive sense involves our emotions, involves our intellect, involves our will, involves our relationships, and certainly it involves the the purpose that God has for us. It also involves our physical being as well. And the moment Adam and Eve partook, they began to die. Well, they they died in every aspect, and they began to die in that physical sense Cells began to die themselves, and then eventually Adam's 930, and 30 years later, ceased breathing. So when death is used in the Bible, in most contexts, and particularly the book of Romans, and I think in this passage, he's talking about this more broad, comprehensive death. We're still walking around, we're still breathing, we're, our heart is still beating, but we're, in the, we're basically physically dead, and eventually we'll stop breathing and Adam lived 930 years. None of you are going to live that long. So there's consequences. Sin is imputed to all Adam's descendants. We talked a little bit about that. So death, not for personal sin. He's not talking about personal sin. He's talking about this imputed sin. That's 13 and 14. It's not a violation of the Mosaic law because the law wasn't there yet. That's what he's explaining. There's no law. Yet there was death. Yet there was sin. So there had to be violation of something. It's not personal. It's violation of the command of Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Descendants suffered the consequences of sin immediately. Cain was dead spiritually. Killed his brother and all the descendants after that. So the consequences not for personal sin. Personal sin is on top of it. So we pile on top of it. So just the sin of Adam that's imputed to us cast us into death. The conclusion is this imputed sin of Adam affected all of us to the 21st century and beyond. So at the end, and this is where we ended last week, and I don't know how interested you are in what I'm going to give you can go through it rapidly. I kind of went through it last week, but if you're interested in a particular type of literature that is very unique to Scripture, anywhere else in literature, but there's a particular concept that's introduced with this little phrase in 514, when it says, for Adam, the offense of Adam, who is a type, Greek word there is tupas, a type 
of him who was to come. Now it's looking at it from Adam's perspective. In other words, Adam is typical in this technical sense. You all have heard of Bible types, right? Some of you, most of you, none of you, <laughs> a couple of you. There's such a thing in the Bible that are called types, from the word tupas, and there's other words that the Bible uses to describe this whole concept. You all interested in this at all? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Even those that have never heard of it? Okay. Yeah. Okay, let me give you a little detail on it. This is right out of my hermeneutics course where we talk about different kinds of literature. There's a, it's not so much a literary form, but it's a device that writers of scripture, particularly the New Testament, utilize. It's a form of prophecy. It's a subset of prophecy. A type. What is a type in Scripture? And this is a hermeneutical or a kind of a, might even say a technical issue, but there's lots of them in Scripture. In fact, some scholars almost take it to the extreme. If you've read a commentary on the book of Genesis by a man by the name of Arthur P., he sees types all over the place. I think that's an abuse of the concept, and I'll kind of show you why. And then there's others that are either unaware or even deny the existence of them. But from passages like this Romans 5 passage and other passages, if we had time, I could give you some of the other ones. I'm just going to kind of give you an introduction to it. A biblical type, here's a kind of a definition of it. Certain persons, events, or institutions, I gave you some examples briefly last time, of the Old Testament that prefigure by God's design, this is carefully written, by the way, prefigure by God's design persons, events, or institutions in the New Testament. Okay, certain persons, events, or institutions of the Old Testament, I'll give you some more examples, that prefigure, that's a key term, I think, that's that prophetic aspect. Now, it's not evident to the writers of the Old Testament, it's not till you come to the New Testament, that we have this typology, you might say, developed. And what's key is how do you identify them? And what I'm giving you is basically out of a hermeneutics text where I think the best explanation is Roy Zuck's hermeneutics text. Look for these characteristics of a biblical type. Now, before I give you these, when it says that Adam is a type of someone else, he's referring to whom in this passage? Christ or Jesus. There's something about Adam that prefigures all the way the first man. There's something about him that prefigures something about Christ. Not everything, but some things. And this passage develops that typology, if you will. Goes into some detail. Through one man sin entered, that looks forward to the solution to that issue. And from Genesis, a seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, a descendant of Adam and Eve, who will solve the issue. That's Genesis 3.15. So it anticipates a solution. 
and 3.15 kind of specifies it in some way. But it's not till the New Testament that we find out not only who that person is, but in what way he solves the issue of sin on the cross. He pays the penalty of sin. He suffers the death in the place of us. Okay? So there's something about Adam that tells us something about Christ. And this passage is developing all that typology. So this is one of the central passages that teaches this idea, this concept that exists in God's word called typology. So what do you look for? I think Roy Zuck gives great guidance on that. There has to be some resemblance between the type and what is described as the anti-type. In other words, what the type prefigures. So Christ would be the anti-type. Not anti, but the correspondence. Yeah. So there's something about Christ that relates to something about Adam. That's what this passage is all about. And we've been seeing some of that. So there has to be some resemblance. Secondly, there has to be some prefiguring. In other words, some prophetic aspect, some aspect that in the future is going to expand and make more evident what took place in the past in the Old Testament. That's why persons, here's an example of a person that is prefigured, you might say, Adam prefigures a solution to Adam's problem. Christ is that solution. So Christ is the anti-type. So it's a prefiguring. A second thing, it's designed. In other words, it's clearly stated in Scripture in such a way that you can see this is God's intention. It's prophetic. There's a design behind it. It's not accidental. It's not just uh, random. It's what God prefigured and in the New Testament makes clear. A fourth aspect is this does not take away in any way that historical event or situation or person. In fact, it supports it. So just as Adam was a real person that experienced real things, plunged humanity into sin and death in a real and definite way, that's an event, a historical event. Every aspect of that historical event is not undermined or detracted from in any way. What we have is another historical event or situation that uh, substantiates the historical event. So it has that historical aspect. There's a heightening in these types. And what we mean by that, what follows or the anti-type is greater, always greater, than what the type that prefigures it represents. So what Christ accomplished is a greater work than the devastating work that Adam Accomplished. So there's a heightening effect in all of these types. And then more importantly, and what's key, I believe, and what separates, I think, a true type from one that's just an illustration or an analogy, yeah, is this last number six here, designated in some way in scripture. And this is one of the clearest designations. It says this is a type. It tells you that this is a type, typology. Now, elsewhere, 
different words are used to convey the idea of typology. Okay? Make sense? So let me give you some examples of other types. Remember something in the Old Testament prefigures by design something in the New Testament. So it's the New Testament that tells you this is typological or typical, if you want to use that word. Before I give you the examples, one that is probably not a type because it's not designated is Joseph in the book of Genesis. There's a lot of parallels between Joseph and Christ as well. There's lots of them. But nowhere in the New Testament is Joseph identified or that connection made. So I kind of hesitate designating it as a type. Rather, I would say it's a very good illustration, but not this technical type. See the distinction there? Okay. And, you know, Joseph, in a lot of ways, is the savior of his family. In a lot of ways, he suffered. In a lot of ways, he, in fact, I don't see any passage in there that condemns him for any sin. Now, we know he is a sinner, but the the text doesn't call attention to it. Doesn't mean he wasn't sinless, but the text doesn't bring that up. So there's a lot of these little parallels, you might say, between Joseph and Christ but it's never designated in the New Testament. Okay, quick review of some of these examples of types, persons. The clearest is Adam. Another one would be David. David is another person that is typical of Christ. Adam is an example, an example of institutions, Passover. In fact, it says Christ is our Passover. Where is that? Lamb. Or Passover lamb, yeah. Where is that? Corinthians, I think. Yeah, I think. Uh, we'll have to look that one up. Offices, that's Hebrews. Hebrews, what is it, seven? There's a type of, or a typical relationship between the priesthood of the Old Testament and the priesthood of Christ. And it's designated by Hebrews, the Hebrews passage. high priest in Hebrews. Yep, he's called our high priest in Hebrews. And it's elaborated. And there's some comparisons and contrasts in there. Events, probably 1 Corinthians 10. Paul uses a different word there, and he uses it a couple of times to tie the experience of the Jewish people in the wilderness to the experience of the believer. There's there's suffering, there's identification with a body or a group, several little parallels in there. And then there's an exhortation that God is not going to tempt you beyond what you are capable or him giving you the enablement. So events, actions, burnt offering. I think, again, in the book of Hebrews, I don't remember the passage that ties the burnt offering of the Old Testament specifically. Things, the tabernacle is a type of indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and other aspects so these are examples where you have all of those characteristics. Hmm. Linda? Well, um, I was wondering why Moses didn't get into the land just that long. But did, did, didn't get into what? It didn't get into the promised land because right. it was getting that long. But does it kind of prefigure the woman at the well, the living water? Mm, there's no designated 
Yeah, that would not cross be a tight. Yeah, cross that one off your list. Blood sacrifice. Again, uh, you'd have to make a case where it's designated. In other words, clearly, there's a lot of these things that are, in fact, examples. And I distinguish an example from a clear type. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, yeah. If you have that verse, yeah, I'll have to look at that one. Yep. Could that be considered? Yeah, it could be. Yeah. The manna and Jesus the bread of life be six. That's possible. Yeah, there's others. This is not a complete list. There's several others. I can give you some more if you want them. Oh yeah, the first time bread is mentioned in the Bible, if I might say, is in Genesis. Owner or former owner of a bakery. When um, those angels came to see uh, Abraham. And he told his wife to go get some bread, or make bread. That's the first occurrence of bread in the Bible. And? So that kind of prefigures Jesus being the bread of life. Because that, isn't that the point where he, uh, Abraham kind of makes a tie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There might be a closer tie to the manna as Jesus is the bread oh. of life, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's verse 14. We looked at it last time, but we didn't quite elaborate on that last part there. So now we're going to look 15 through 17, and obviously we're not going to get through all of it, but let me get through as far as we can. The contrast of rains, beginning in verse 15. So we're transitioning, moving our way to verse 18. I just showed you this last time. So we're going to have the alternative. He has already kind of developed that rain of death through one man, and now he's going to contrast it with a different rain. We'll see that in verse 17. We won't get that far. But the free gift, the free gift, notice the stress here. This is the contrast. And he's emphasizing the freeness of this gift. The free gift, translated charisma. What does that sound like? Charismatic. Charismatic which comes from charis, the idea of grace. But we have grace in the same verse here. For the free gift is not like the transgression, like the sin. And by the way, that's that word I gave you last time. I'll show it to you again when we get there. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace. What's the stress in this whole passage? The transition, the contrast is what God has done on our behalf. Not what we do, because what we do, our righteousness is our filthy rags. It's what God has done in Christ. So much more did the grace, and notice much more. That's going to be repeated five times in the passage. So what Christ has done is greater in terms of blessing and reversing, greater than the devastation that Adam introduced. So much more did the grace of God and the gift, a different word. Instead of charis, we have doria. The gift by the grace, again, of the one. There's the one again, the one man. And if you didn't quite pick it up, it's Jesus Christ. And it abounds to the many. There's grace in abundance if we will avail ourselves of it. And then 16, the gift, a different word related to Doria, 
probably a synonym, Dorema. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, here's the alternative, here's the contrast, the free gift, same one that started verse 15, charisma arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. And it doesn't stop in verse 16, verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one death reigned, there's the idea of reign again, death reigned through one, one, Adam again, much more, there's a little phrase again, much more those who receive the abundance of grace, charis again, and the gift, the other word, doria. What's the stress through here? This is a free gift, nothing you do to earn it. That's in contrast to all of us participating on top of being imputed sin, we participate by sinning as well. The gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And he makes it clear he's the one. So verse 15, but the free gift, let's go back to the beginning there, the free gift is not like the transgression. Radical difference. So A type can have lots of contrasts like this one does. There's a resemblance, but it's a resemblance of contrast. There's comparison in that one thing was accomplished, one man was involved, one result or one huge result came about. So there's a lot of comparison in this type, but there's also a lot of contrast. In fact, there's more contrast than comparison. So it mixes comparison and contrast. The gift is not like the transgression. Very, very different. Now he's going to bring out those differences. So we have all these grace words, charisma, a grace gift, a gift that is undeserved, unearned, cannot do anything to receive it. And then we have another word in verse 15, the transgression. This is the word I accidentally gave you last time by mistake. Paraptoma, is that how you pronounce it? Where's the accent on that one, do you remember? Paraptoma, or, all right, Greek word, transgression. So we have different Greek words, different grace words, all in contrast. For if by the transgression, this is kind of a review, if by the transgression of the one, many died. He's already stated that in verse 12. All of the descendants, all of them died in this comprehensive sense. Not in the sense that they ceased breathing or their heart stopped, but in the sense their intellect is now totally distorted. Their emotions are thrown totally out of whack. Their social relationships are totally messed up. Their purpose in life is damaged. Their whole morality is dead as well. They have shame. And physically, their individual cells are starting to die and they're beginning to age. The transgression of the one, many died, much more. What Christ accomplished, we have a heightening in the typology. We have a greater work. Not in numbers. In other words, it's not going to talk about everybody receiving this. He's already made that clear. It's those that trust in Christ. But many, in other words, it's available to 
all nations, all peoples, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, this is going to abound to the many. So we have the grace of God and the gift by the grace. So we have a different word. Remember, I gave you a different word there. So we have charisma, grace gift. And then we have charis, that's unmerited blessing or unmerited favor, undeserved, nothing we can do to earn it. And then that doria is kind of a a general word for gift, what you do at Christmas. You wrap a package and just give it to somebody. So there's two basic words that have the idea of gift. Abound, again, it kind of emphasizes the greater work of Christ, abounding, in other words, in abundance. Grace is available in abundance, even though most of mankind rejects it. That doesn't diminish what's available. It doesn't diminish what God has done. In fact, when we go to be with him, it'll be, a, it'll be more evident, the abundance of this grace. So we have some contrasts in all of these verses. The first one is verse 15. That transgression of the one results in the many dying. In contrast to what? The grace of the one and many abounding. In other words, many receiving an abundance of this grace. A greater work. So verse 16, the gift is not, almost repeating what he, the way he started verse 15, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Keep reiterating the one, Adam. And this gift is not like that, again, the contrast that came through the one who sinned. That's hamartia, by the way. For on the one hand, dorema, we have dorema, that's the gift there. Dorema, probably a synonym of the general gift word, four different words. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. Now we need to be careful with this word here, and this might be, I don't know, I'm going to have to expand that, because I think he's transitioning here, and even though I think the translation is okay, but it has a slightly fuller meaning, if you will, and let me expand upon this. For on the one hand, judgment, that's, well, let me give you the word on that, that's krima, that's what a judge does at the end of a jury and, what do you call it? Trial. Trial, that's the word I'm looking for. At the end of the trial, what does the judge do? He pronounces a sentence, that's krima. That's the judgment. The other word, let me backtrack here, arose from one transgression resulting in, what does the judge say? You are condemned. It's a different word. It's the same word with a preposition before that intensifies it and and takes it to the next stage. It's the next thing that the judge does. He says you're guilty, But then he also announces and begins the execution of the sentence. And that word is kata krima. Krima, 
the decision or the verdict, katakrima, the execution of the sentence, and what was the sentence that Adam received? This comprehensive death or servitude to sin. Mary Lee. Would you call that an in the imposing the sentence? The judge has said, you're guilty now. This is the sentence. This, I am imposing this sentence upon you. So and you're carried out and your sentence you begins. 20, 60 years of a prison would be the katakrima. Yep. Okay. Or better, execution. Capital punishment. <laughs> What he's transitioning here, and the reason I'm mentioning this is because of the next phrase, the free gift arose from many transgressions. So this includes Adam's descendants, not just Adam now, because it multiplied and degenerated. But the last phrase, resulting in justification. Now, we've been looking at that word, but and this is probably not a bad translation, but there's more to it here in this Context. Remember, words have meaning in their context. So let me expand it. Let me review here. And this is where we'll end today. We won't get into verse 17. I think what he's getting at here, carrying this analogy through, this contrast through, he is moving to this area of living now. All right? And by the way, there's a different word that he uses here. It's not reflected in the translations. That's why I'm bringing it out. We've looked at this word in some detail. This is one of the major words in the book of Romans. Righteous. Dikaios. The idea of having a right standing can be used in an everyday sense. Right standing before a law. Or in this theological sense, a right standing before God. We've seen that. I'm putting these up there so you can see the similarity in the words. We saw righteousness, the state or the condition of being in a righteous place. That's dikaiosune, dikaiosune, righteousness. We also saw, notice the similarity in the word, the verb form. It's the same word in the Greek, same idea, same meaning, except it is the idea of declaring righteous. Declaring righteous. That's how we've seen it so far. Or to justify. Sometimes the word justification is used. There's justification. The word here, notice the similarity, dikaioma. See the similarity in all the words? So it has the same idea. Same idea. Except here, in some context, it's translated as a righteous work or righteous action or righteous deed. In this context, and you're going to see it more clearly, because verse 17 is going to expand upon it. Verse 17 is going to give more detail to this idea of righteous living. He's transitioning to chapter 6, 7, and 8. And he's going to start talking about how do we live the Christian life. Not how do we become a believer, how do we receive justification, but now how do we live it out. So 15, we have the transgression of the one, many died. Contrast, the grace of the one, many abounded. 17, one transgression brought a judgment of guilt that results in a sentence of servitude to sin. No other option to trust Christ. 
That's in contrast to the many transgressions that Jesus paid for that brings about, by his payment, a free gift, and that results in righteous living. So he's introducing the Christian walk now. You see that? Dikaioma. Different word. It's not the word to justify, or it's not the word justification. It's a different word in the Greek text. And then that moves into 17, where he's going to expand upon it, but our time is up, so we need to stop. We'll pick up there. And, well, real quickly, if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. So now he's introducing this ongoing rulership of death. And the contrast is the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. That's the key to living out the Christian life. A different rulership. Different things are dictating how we live, how we act. We'll start looking at it, and then 18 is going to expand on that. We have amazing grace, not only for justification. We've seen that so clear. But also for living. There's power available. That's chapter 6, 7, and 8. Who wants to close for us? Terry. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it's just so awesome. We can't comprehend what you've done for us, Lord. Help us, Lord, though, to live out the hope that we do have that you've given us. Help us to share that with us. In Jesus' name. Amen.